Hello and welcome to Code for Thoughts, a new podcast about software engineering, research and anything in between. In this session I'd like to give you a taste of what you can expect in this show, but before I do that, let me introduce myself. My name's Peter Schmidt, I'm a research software engineer at the University College London in the United Kingdom. I also happen to be a big fan of podcasts, and after having listened to and being inspired by various shows, I wanted to try podcasting myself. And so I joined Research Software Engineering Stories, a podcast show created by Vanessa Sochard at Stanford University in 2019. Since June 2020, Vanessa and I have been hosting episodes regularly and brought you interviews with colleagues from around the globe. If you haven't heard of RSE Stories, maybe you should check it out. Research Software Engineering is a new field, and as research software engineers we cover pretty much all aspects of research and science, from humanities and art to physics, chemistry and math. And so I thought it would be really exciting to give you another podcast about the research projects we work on and the kind of technologies we use, but also to have general conversations on how we work and what makes us tick. Hence the idea of Code for Thought was born. If you haven't heard of Research Software Engineering before, that's okay. You're not alone. I only joined as an RSE in late 2019, after many years as a software engineer in the private sector. Software in research and science, of course, isn't new at all. During my time in physics research back in the 1990s, we were all writing software to help us understand and analyse the data we got from our experiments. But the software we wrote and maintained ourselves was almost an afterthought. Most of us were self-taught, and best practices were at best something we accidentally stumbled on after learning hard lessons from mistakes and failures we made. Research software engineering did simply not exist. Not until a few years ago, in fact. In 2010, the Software Sustainability Institute in the UK was created to address the need for better and more sustainable research software, how much of a need there was became apparent after the Institute ran a survey in 2014. For this first episode of Code for Thought, I met with Simon Hedrick, Deputy Director of the Sustainability Institute, and Claire Wyatt, Trustee and Vice President of the Society for Research Software Engineering in the UK. But first, let's hear from Simon. I'm interested in the survey from 2014, which is quite some time ago, but it's a survey about software and research. Can you tell us some more about it? Well, so it was one of the big problems we had when we came to the first, to the end of the first phase of the SSI. You know, we've been telling people, funders, policymakers, that um, you know, software is really, really important to, to research. You know, we expect it to be ubiquitous across all dis- disciplines. Everybody we talk to, they believe the same. And this is the right thing because we all believe in evidence-led policy. They were asking, you know, how many researchers rely on software, and how much of our research funding is reliant on, on, on software as well. We we were trying to work out how you could put a figure on that, and it's a really difficult thing. The research community is this terrible nebulous cloud of people working in different areas and doing different things in different ways, and they have different ways of thinking about what software is, and and you know many mm. completely overlooked it. So we, we, we were trying to work out how we could get a, a figure on it. And eventually we decided that a survey was the only way forward. When we talk about survey, as you say, that I mean, it's a wide range, really. So 
a lot of people write their papers nowadays in Word or LaTeX, right? I mean, would that count? Does uh, did they say, well, we're using software now, research, and you know, it was for writing papers, or how did you define software in research? And you've instantly got to the nub of the matter, and and it's what always caused all the problems whenever we tried to do surveys in the past, and and that was, you know, how do you define software? You know, one of the greatest things, the sort of greatest joys in my life is wandering up to a group of computer scientists and asking them whether Excel could be called software or not, and then just wandering off and hearing the argument. No, so the way we decided to define it was we allowed people to define it themselves, but we defined what the function was. So we said research software for the purposes of this survey is any software that you use to generate a result which you intend to appear in a publication. So it was all about working on something that would eventually produce a result that you're going to publish. And we kind of completely glossed over what software is. And there's a really good reason for that, which is if you try and define software, you're inevitably going to cut some groups out. And mm. you're, inevitably going to, you're potentially are talking about things that some people who are using software won't fully understand. So then they won't feel, they won't know whether they're in the gang or not. But if you define on results and the generation of results, you do two things. One of which everybody understands what that is. And the other thing is you put the focus on, this is the only software we care about is the stuff that is producing results. Because ultimately mm. that's the stuff that we care about being reliable and reproducible. So what did come out of the survey then? What's the result? So the result was that 92% of researchers from across all disciplines um, use research software in, the, in their work, and that 69% said it was fundamental to the generation of results. And obviously that's really interesting because that's mm. the bit where you can start to say, so if it's fundamental to the research, if you remove software overnight, you lose about 70% of all your research or your research funding or your research people. And once we got that figure out, that's when things really started to change because finally policymakers, you know, could, they could see the sense in having to support software, think about the way that software is funded, think about the way that people around software are, are retained and sustained. But now they could also, they could also have the evidential backing to say that this is a wise investment because if we don't invest in software now, we're going to lose a lot. I guess that it did help in the formal recognition of RSE in the UK. Did it accelerate it? I mean, how if the survey hadn't taken place, uh, would we actually have any formal recognition of RSEs in the UK, do you think, or anywhere else for that matter? Um, yeah, I think we, should, we still would have had RSEs. I think, you know, obviously the survey results helped us um, further a lot of policies that were related to software and the people that generate it and write it mm. in research but i've always said with research software engineers you know if, if they didn't exist it would be necessary to invent them because like there's so much software in research now people have started to understand that they just can't and researchers have started to understand that they just can't cope with the development of this software and they need to bring specialists in so i think that would have progressed anyways i'm not i'm sure that would have progressed anyways But it certainly, it certainly helped to be able to put some numbers behind it and to provide some evidence. Quite some time ago, I mean, six years in technology is a very long time. So how do you think, how much has changed? And is there going to be another survey out there? Yes, <laughs> six years is a hell of a long time in technology. And, uh, and I imagine that things have changed quite considerably. And certainly, you know, we're seeing signs of that from our work with, especially with UKRI funders. We're seeing a, um, a lot more interest from them coming to us, wanting guidance on how to um, support software in their calls. Software adoption is accelerating. Mm. As it, it is definitely time to run another survey, but the, we had a bit of a problem, which is, um, well, the story behind the survey 
is that I'm a physicist, I'm a laser physicist, and I'm suddenly thrust into this world having to do um, social science, trying to understand how to construct a <laughs> survey without biasing anyone, and then come across this, you know, this problem of the sample frame. You know, we want to take a representative sample mm -hmm. across 15 universities, 15 Russell Group universities. How do you do that? And to a physicist, especially one with you know, the backup of a number of RSEs, the easy way of doing that is just identify the websites and then write a web scrapers that go over the websites, pull everybody's email address off, and then randomly take a thousand um, email addresses from each of the, of the websites, then, then send 15,000 emails. And that's a really logical approach to things, uh, but not one that's welcomed by, by IT, especially within those universities. Um, so I ended up with a, with a lifetime ban of ever emailing Imperial College again, um, which I managed to, <laughs> oh, <dear. laughs> I managed to get that overturned through, through pleading um, uh, over time. We have another survey. We have another survey set up right now, and it was meant to be running this year, but sort of COVID sort of knocked that one out of the mm. park. Um, and the way we we're getting around the problem is we've federated the survey. So I constructed a new survey. Um, I conducted that at the University of Southampton, where I'm based. Mm. Uh, a brilliant response rate, 10% over all faculties. And then I've packaged everything up. So all the paperwork, all the ethics paperwork, you know, all the survey, obviously, the analysis, mm. uh, my code and all that sort of stuff, all packaged up. And I've been I'm sharing it with other people. And it's currently going ahead at Sheffield, but it's, there's about 10 other universities who are on board but they just haven't progressed this year because there's been so much, so much work yeah. to, to for everybody to catch up. So next year, next year is when we'll see an update. Okay, here's a lesson learned. If you want to run a survey, don't bomb people's email inboxes. So, as Simon said, the survey helped laying the groundwork for getting research software engineering recognised as a role and getting the movement started across different countries leading up to the formation of local chapters and associations like, for instance, the Society for Research Software Engineering in the UK. Claire has been right there from the beginning. Claire, you've been with the Society for Research Software Engineering since its foundation, but there's quite a long history before that. I joined in January 2016. Um, I joined the Southampton Research Software Group, uh, run by mm -hmm. Simon and John. Previously, I was manager of a doctoral training centre in web science, also at the University of Southampton for six years before that. So I actually stayed in the same faculty, in the same research group, everything, just moved to a, to a different grant. And I took the position of network administrator um, to start with and worked with Simon on in that position for three years on um, an EPSC, EPSRC grant for an RSC network. Um, out of that came the conference and many other events and um, my position of network administrator. Then I recently moved last year to the role of community manager, which is, is a new role for me and I'm learning all the time and that was in April 2019 that's with the Software Sustainability Institute. In 2018 the UKRSC Association started to look at setting up a charity and we looked at which charity type we would want to be and Simon worked very hard on all the paperwork throughout um, 2018 and we were finally established as a charitable incorporated organisation the CIO in March 2019. Right, so quite recent. Research Software Engineering Network, that's then the precursor to the Society for Research Software Engineering. Did I get that right? The research, the RSC network allowed us to have a 
part-time person who worked solely on this movement for three years, which was myself, mm-hmm. and was the startup money for the conference, the RSC Leaders Network, lots of other events that we started up that are still going now. Um, and that network grant started the UKRC Association and the association morphed into the charity when we then started elections for trustees and things. All right. Quite an important catalyst. And um, when I talk to people, um, one thing that comes up frequently, and not just for people in the UK, but also for RSEs from outside, the conference in Manchester in 2016. So why was that such an important conference, do you think? Yeah, it was really pivotal. Um, it was a, a funny time. I'd only been in position for a few months before we started the organisation organising the conference um, to be in Manchester that September. And it being the first ever RSE conference, we just didn't know if we'd get any submissions, if we'd get any attendees. So we went for a fantastic venue in Manchester, the um, Science Museum, can hold I think about 150 people and we're thinking we hope we fill it we hope we get submission and it was just it fantastic it was really popular it completely took off we had plenty of content and submissions we had parallel tracks all the rooms used in fact the second year we had to or after the second year 2017 we had to move to a different venue to the University of Birmingham because we'd we'd maxed out the number of attendees we could have and tickets were selling so fast we realized we needed to move to to a bigger venue but that, that 2016 conference we realized that this was something absolutely wanted and needed by the community lots mm. of people came from came to join us from I think um overall about 18 different countries where they met each other for the first time and, and mm. started to set up their own national groups so um yeah it was really pivotal and it's just taken off since then the latest conference in 2019 we are almost maxing out their largest room of 420 attendees so it's really yeah it's really grown from about 80 to 100 people or so in the first conference to yeah 420 now and some sponsors have been with us all that time all four years they keep coming back and sponsoring us again and wanting to be there at that event and really starting to talk about partnering with us rather than being at just one event partnering with us throughout the whole year so COVID, of course, changed all of that in terms of community building and getting together, because this year there wasn't a live conference of, uh, for, for RSEs. How can we keep the community together in situations like that? And what do, you see, what do you think is going to happen in 2021 and going forward? Yeah, it's a really tricky one. I don't know if anyone else has noticed, but the, the RSE Slack space um, did quieten down in the year. And I know that from um, Alice and James that a lot of RSEs were pulled into COVID modelling and COVID work. So everyone was very busy. Online is obviously all we can do at the moment and arrange events. And we can provide the online events that people need, webinars or training. But I think it has highlighted that whichever online tool you use, it's great for broadcast, like a webinar or a training, like a one way. But for networking, we really need those in-person events. I think they top up our online presence and they spark more activity in our online place, Mm. our Slack and our Twitter. Once we've met again in person, whether it's the leaders event or a training event or the conference. So, yeah, I I think this year has really shown us that the networking in the coffee queue or, you know, after somebody's spoken, you can go off and have a chat with them privately rather than the whole Zoom room listening into your chat. 
you just you can't replicate that i don't think we've tried mm. lots of different tools and you can't so yeah i can't wait to get back to in person keeping the community together we'll do our best on slack and twitter and hopefully it won't be long till we can have our in-person event again uh, so which we hopefully will have in 2021 can i add something to that so the one thing that i think that happened with the the rc uh, the first RC conference in Manchester was the fact that we'd got all these people together and it, the the feeling in the room was just amazing for me. Like, cause you know, you brought all of these people together who were completely overlooked and unrecognized and you put them in a room with 220 other people. And suddenly there was a lot of excitement about, Oh my word, you know, like we're not, we're not alone where there are lots of people doing this. And if we can get this kind of number together, like we should be able to change the way that we are treated as a community within academia and then seeing people from other countries coming in and, and getting infected with exactly the same level of excitement was, was that was really, really tremendous. And to be there at that first event was like spine-tinglingly good. And I think that's one of the things I've been missing. Like this year, I haven't had my dose of getting into a room with a few hundred other research software engineers, feeling that esprit de corps and just like feeling like, yeah, we're doing something good here. Um, and if you mm. want to really look at the kind of good that we do, look at the stuff. You know, lots of RSEs went off to do to help the um, COVID modelers because for that period of time, suddenly everybody was really aware of the importance of software. But so good I or bad, was, I do appreciate that the person and face-to-face meeting is important. So where do you think it's going to be then, the next one? So assuming there's going to be a face-to-face conference in 2021, so vaccine and all of that, because planning would have to start pretty soon then, didn't it? Yes, that's right. But it's top secret. I can't tell you, Peter. Even if I stop recording, you mean? <laughs> yeah, oh, maybe. <laughs> stop recording. We're looking at several venues. We know that people would like to move on from the University of Birmingham. So we're looking to move it into a different part of the country. There are three or four that we're considering um, around the same time, September. Um, but that's that's all we know at the moment. We, like everybody, are trying to you know gauge how quickly the vaccine will get rolled out how willing people are to travel to a conference, willing to be in large crowds again, even with the vaccine. And whether obviously it is a lot more inclusive if you have an online event, a lot more people can join who have um, care responsibilities or can't travel for whatever reason. You you can include a lot more people that way. You Mm -hmm. just miss out on the networking. We'll see. But in the meantime, we've been trying... Um, an online series of events called Source, or I pronounce it Source, um, as in the source of all RSC goodness. (laughs) (laughs) And for series, I know it's cheesy, series of online research software events. We started that, launched it in September, and there's been a weekly event every week since then. And it's all community content that would normally be included in an RSC conference. So trying to keep us all in touch, learning new things, learning new skills, networking. Mm-hmm. It's open to the entire international community, so it's not uh, restricted to one country. So you, if you attend an event or you create an event and you submit content, you're meeting people from all around the world, essentially. And it's still open for submissions. It's a rolling deadline every month. Um, and yeah, we've got we've already got submissions all into mid-February, I believe. So that's going great. I'm really pleased. Yeah, we tried to do something online that took the place of all the RSC conferences that had to get uh, cancelled, unfortunately, this year. As I hope you heard from Simon and Claire, there's been a lot of excitement since the early days of the RSE movement. COVID-19 has, as you heard, thrown a bit of a spanner into the works, certainly where face-to-face meetings are concerned. 
But still, the number of research software engineers has grown rapidly since the influential conference in Manchester in 2016. And research software engineers can now be found in many universities across the globe, in research labs and in companies, all of which reflects the importance that software plays in modern science and research. And yet, there are still lots to do. How do we recognize research software in research output? How can we make research output and software more reproducible? How can we enable aspiring software engineers to pursue a fulfilling career in science? And then, of course, there are the broader questions we should ask ourselves. How can we help sharing scientific knowledge more widely and fairer? How can we help and give more visibility to research that happens in smaller universities and research centres? And since the pandemic struck in 2020, how will we be working together in future and still grow our communities? In Code for Thought, I plan, and I hope, to touch on these questions and hopefully get some conversations going, or at least whet your appetite to find out more and make you curious about the work we do. That, for me, after all, is the great thing about podcasting. And so you will hear from a range of different people, starting with an interview with Sarah King and Richard Gunn from the Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council in the UK. But also an interview with Africa Archive, a preprint service to increase the visibility of research in Africa. An interview with a French developer and why thinking about sociology helps us in software engineering. A reprohack event at UCL in London and many more. So before we end this episode, allow me a few final remarks. This is a non-commercial and a not-for-profit podcast. Instead, this podcast is made possible with the great support I receive from members in the research software community, the University College London and the Society for Research Software Engineering. I sincerely hope you will find the show interesting and add it to your list of podcasts. And with that, goodbye. And I see you at the next episode.